All right, as we begin our time together around the communion table, just want to remind us just of how important this is, how precious this is. Uh, I don't know about you, but my week's been filled with all sorts of uh, plans going wrong, all sorts of things not going how I wanted them to. Uh, and that happens from week to week. It feels like a regular thing at the moment. But we come together today to celebrate something that always remains the same. At the Lord Jesus, what he's done. Uh, and I hope that we can perhaps, if you're like me, I had to make a decision this morning that I was going to be focused that I was going to lose sight of all that has gone on, all that's yet to come, so that I could really focus my attention on uh, what's before us. So uh, you might be struggling with tiredness, might have had a difficult week, but I hope that this will encourage uh, and uh, open your eyes to some new truths maybe you didn't know or even just remind us of truths that we do know uh, and they're precious truths. So that's, uh, that's my hope and prayer. Last month we commenced a new communion series called A Glossary of Glorious titles. We spent a long time on a glossary of glorious terms and you see them around the room but last month we started a new series called a glossary of glorious titles. We began by looking at the title of advocate used only once in the Bible in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 and that was precious. Today we are going to look at a title that is at the other end of the spectrum. It is so common in Christian culture and circles today that has almost become cliche. It is three titles in one and filled with incredible truths, which I believe are largely missed because of the flippancy with which we use them. This three-in-one title contains a world of theology, which we will seek to enter this morning. It is my prayer that you will come to see the great value and the glory of this designation which is used to describe and identify the Son of God. I want to begin this message by separating these three titles, looking at them individually, and then we're going to reunite them to see how they function and harmonise as one glorious title. And so join me this morning as I preach a message entitled A Glossary of Glorious Titles, Part 2, as we look specifically at the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you at this moment because we are in desperate need of help. None of us can appreciate or comprehend the fullness of what we're about to look at. Not until we ever get to glory and see you face to face with that knowledge that comes only from you. Uh, but Lord, while we're here uh, in this service for this time we have together, open our eyes. Lord, let us lay aside all of our conceptions ideas, cliches, culture even, in order to focus on these three terms, these three titles, these three words that each of them are a world of theology in themselves. The titles by which you are most commonly known, the Lord Jesus Christ. May they mean something so much greater. May they be so much more precious May we be enriched in our understanding on these particular titles today, we pray. In his name, the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, I have a Herculean task in front of me. Herculean. Um, I'm, I have so much here and we're going to race through it 
I'm probably, probably going to lose some of you along the way and I'm okay with that because we've got to do all three. I tried my very best. I thought I'm going to separate these and we'll do them in three sets. I can't do it because they are all so interwoven with each other. And so uh, get ready. Here we go. <laughs> We're beginning with the title Lord, L-O-R-D. This word, this title appears 7,913 times. In your Bible. That's a lot of times. 7,913. The vast majority of usage of this English word is in the Old Testament 7,260 times and is most often in the Old Testament in reference to Jehovah, the self existing God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord, God Almighty. But in the New Testament, it's found 653 times. And it is most often associated with the Son of God, whose human name is Jesus. The word Lord in the Greek New Testament is the word kurios, and it carries the idea of supremacy, the idea of authority, a controller, a master, a possessor and a disposer, an owner, one who is sovereign. And we find throughout the scripture that the word is often associated with other titles that denote specific authority. For example, Jesus is called the Lord of the living and the dead, the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of the harvest, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of Lords, and so on. I want to look at a number of examples this morning to help us to understand what the meaning of this word Lord really is. And so to do so, take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. What do we mean when we say Lord? Well, let's look at what this man meant in Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse number 5. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, Matthew records for us, when he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but Only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. I want to just have a quick look at some specific observations from this text here. First of all, a centurion was a captain in the Romans' army, which meant that he had at least 100 soldiers at his disposal at any time. This is an important man in this day. The centurion addresses God's son as Lord on two occasions. That says something. Here is a centurion, a captain of an army, 
And here he is addressing Jesus Christ as Lord. In verse number 8, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. In verse 6, he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed. We see that a centurion here, he knows how to give and receive commands. He understands how this operates. He's a centurion. They say to him, captain of the army, centurion, you're the boss. But here in this particular passage, he gives an indication of what he thinks the word Lord means. I tell people to go and they go. I tell people to come and they come. Now, Jesus, you, Lord, you just say the word and my servant will be healed. That's quite an amazing thing for a Roman centurion to say to Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter's son. Wouldn't you agree? The centurion understood, furthermore, his unworthiness. Look at what he says in verse 9, excuse me, verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood his unworthiness to accommodate this Lord. Perhaps this gives us an indication of what is meant here by this word, Lord, when we look at the centurion. But that's not enough. Let's go to Matthew chapter 14. Let me take you to another passage. Help us understand what is meant by the word, Lord. Matthew 14, verse 22. And let me read through to verse 33 here. Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Don't, don't skip over that. Here comes Jesus walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to walk, uh, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I believe with all my heart that an interesting transition takes place in this situation. The disciples transition from calling Jesus, I think, a Lord to the Lord. Let me explain what I mean by that. Suddenly there is a change. Peter recognizes that this is Jesus coming on the water, although he's not sure. He says, if it is you, bid me come on the water. So Jesus says, come. At that point, just before that, in verse 28, Peter says, Lord, if it is you. Okay. I suspect that that first Lord, if it is you, might be a little bit different to the second Lord in verse 31. Jesus, uh, verse 30, where he says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. The first one was, I recognize who this person is. Same word. I recognize if this is you, bid me come on the water. Now, suddenly I'm sinking in the waves and the wind and everything is concerned. Suddenly, this is a different Lord. This is a Lord of dependence. You are the Lord. You are in control of the wind and the waves and you are the only one who can rescue me. 
We get an indication perhaps of how this word Lord is used in different ways. And look at what the disciples said at the end. Those in the boat worshipped him saying, truly, you are the son of God. Maybe just a little bit of an indication of how this word Lord is used in scripture. Let's go to one more, Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, we read of a fairly vicious, assertive, zealous Jew who is rather keen on the destruction of Christians. Beginning in verse 1, the young man Saul, the Bible says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. This is one portion in the scripture that deals with the conversion of Saul, who later becomes Paul. In another place, in Acts 22 and verse 10, we won't turn there, we find that another question was asked on this occasion by Saul to Jesus. He actually says, what shall I do, Lord? Two occasions, this man Saul, who doesn't really know that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, is confronted with this person, Jesus, and he says, who are you, Lord, and what would you have me to do, Lord? These give us an indication, perhaps, of what this word means, of how this word is being used. Saul knew quickly before whom he knelt on the Damascus road, and for the rest of his life he referred to the Son of God as Lord. For us today, this word Lord, used so flippantly, used so regularly in Christian circles. A foreign word to the world, apart from maybe the lords in England and the lords of history, but for us, we use this word all the time. But when we are using this word, we must understand what it is that we are saying. The word Lord is sovereign, master, king, the one in control. And so when we say in our prayer and we begin and we say, Lord, we are saying, you're in control I'm your servant, I'm your slave, I'm dependent upon you, you are in control. I bow before your majesty as Lord, Lord. And I want to give us a few applications here before we move on to the second title of Jesus. The first application I want you to ask or think about yourself, just because you use the title Lord does not mean you have ultimately submitted to his authority. Words are cheap. Prayers are cheap. You say, how can you say that? I say Lord all the time and I submit to that. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, we read the scariest verse in the whole Bible. And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Just because you call him Lord doesn't mean he is your Lord. 
And he says there, uh, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many on that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then what will that Lord say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. See, the problem we've got here is lots of people call him Lord, but there's a lot more that are not under his dominion and his authority. And there's a lot more that are not truly his subjects. So we say, Lord, Lord, and yet we find in the scripture that it's not whether you know him, but whether he knows you. Lord, the word Lord, just because you use the title Lord doesn't mean that you are his. Secondly, the word Lord is not a flippant title. It is to be used in sincerity by one who humbly submits to the authority and the power and the commands of the master. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you to do? If we are going to call him Lord, then we are saying, I submit, I'm willing to obey in all things, Lord. And then thirdly, the word Lord, as it relates to Jesus, refers not only to his sovereignty over us, but also to his deity as the Lord God Almighty. Revelation 15, John 14, verses 8 to 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I not been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show me the Father? And then in John 20, after the resurrection, he says to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. When we say Lord, we say God. When we say Lord, we say sovereign. When we say Lord, we say God in the flesh has come and he is in control here. That's what we mean when we say Lord. Thirdly, it relates to his deity. And then fourthly, by way of application, there can only be one ruler or Lord in your life. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. You can't have two lords. And so as we sit here this morning, the question that we need to ask ourselves, who or what is Lord of my life? If I'm going to pray Lord, then I need to recognize I'm saying he is the Lord. Money is not my Lord. Cars are not my Lord. Shares and properties and investments are not my Lord. God is my Lord. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. And so when we say, Lord, we are saying, Master. We're saying, I'm yours. I am under submission to you as the sovereign. But then let's look at our second title. Jesus. The word Jesus is used 966 times in our ESV translation. It's the Greek word Yeshua. And it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. In actual fact, Jesus is simply Joshua. It's a transliteration. And so we need to understand that it's a very common name in Jewish history. But almost every time it's used in the New Testament, it refers to the Son of God. 
Jesus. If the word Lord speaks of his deity, his being God, then the word Jesus speaks of his humanity, of his humanity. Have a look at Matthew chapter 1 with me, please. Matthew chapter 1. And if we'll find verse 18. To give us an indication how this title came about. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what was spoken, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. We sing and we read about this around that Christmas period of time. But here's some observations for us. The title or the name Jesus was divinely selected. An angel of the Lord came to Joseph and said, instead of calling him Joseph, which would be common, your first child as part of the Jewish history, you call them by the same name. Instead of calling him Joseph, I want you to call him Jesus. Why? Joseph might ask. He doesn't, but why? And the answer is given. For he shall save his people from their sins. You say, well, why is that relevant? That's exactly what his name means. Jesus, Jehovah is salvation. I can't think of a better title or meaning of a name for the human man who died on the cross other than I am the saviour. Jehovah is salvation. And the name was also given because of prophecy in the past. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. But also it was prophetic in its future tense as well. He will save his people from their sins. It's a very common name, I said, for the Jews. But it had special significance in the life of the Lord. Joshua was used all the time as a name. But nobody had the name Joshua and was able to perform all that the Lord Jesus did in his fullness except for him. And the scriptures are replete. They are filled with references to Jesus and his work of salvation on the cross. In Acts 16.31, they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. In Ephesians 2.13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In 1 Timothy 1.15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, Paul says. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ 
Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2 says, looking to Jesus, the author and founder, the author, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And then lastly, in Revelation 1 5, we read, Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. The name was chosen for a reason. And so we put them together so far. Lord speaks of master, sovereign, supreme one. Here, Jesus, his human earthly name speaks of the salvation that only he could achieve as a man who died on the cross for the sins of you and I. But then lastly, we need to look at this third title. And I know you're excited because we're up to the third title, but this is the one that takes the effort and the time big time. This is an amazing title, which is Christ. Lord, Jesus, and now Christ. Christ. The word or title Christ appears 533 times, less than the other two in the New Testament. Of all the titles given to the Son of God, I believe this one carries greater theological weight and application than all the others. If Lord refers to his deity, if Jesus refers to his humanity and his salvation, then Christ refers to his vocation or his calling. Deity, humanity, vocation. The word is Christos in the Greek and it literally means the anointed or the anointed one. It is synonymous with the word you may hear used by Jews often, Messiah or Messias, that we see throughout our Bibles. For the Jew, speaking as a Jew, having involved myself with Jews over many, many years, let me say the word Christ or Messiah is extremely precious to those who continue to follow Judaism. Because it speaks or spoke of the one who was promised all through the Old Testament that they today are still waiting for in their uh, belief of religion. And they constantly read Daniel chapter 9 verse 25 which says this. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, a prince There shall be seven weeks, and the prophecy continues in Daniel. The Jews had been waiting for the restorer of Jerusalem, the promised Messiah, the ruler in Israel. In Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, a great prophecy, But you, O Bethlehem Ephratah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. You remember when uh, the wise men came to Jerusalem and they were looking for this Messiah, they'd seen his star and Herod gathers all the Jewish people and says, where are all the Jewish leaders and the scribes and Pharisees? Where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they said, well, Micah 5.2 says in Bethlehem of Ephratah, they worked it out. And there they found the Lord Jesus, although he had moved by them when the wise men got there. But that was the place they knew the Messiah was coming. They quote Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, which we know, which says, 
For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is who the Jews are waiting for. This word Christ is Jewish. This word Christ is about the Messiah. He was promised in Genesis 3.15 and all the way through the Old Testament he's coming, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. That's what it meant to the Jews, this word Christ or Christos or Messiah. Now, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4, please. And I want to illustrate this by looking at the Samaritan woman. Perhaps a part to this story that you may not be that familiar with. John chapter 4. You'll remember that the Lord Jesus made a definite decision to go through Samaria, a place that was considered uh, evil to the Jews, a place that was considered of half-breeds, unclean people. You don't have anything to do with Samaritans if you're a pure Jew. Well, that's not how the Lord Jesus saw things. John chapter 4 and verse 19. Halfway through the dialogue, we read this. The woman said to him, that's Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Here's the point. You think you should be you think the Jews should worship in Jerusalem. Samaritans think you should worship Mount Ebal. And I'm saying neither of them is correct. You will worship him in spirit and in truth. It'll be the real deal inside, not outside, not a mountain. It'll be internal is what Jesus says. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christos, Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Oh, she's about to get a shock. In verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. If I can use vernacular today, that would have been bam, bam. She's saying, you're a great prophet. You've got some great things to say. I mean, you just told me I've been divorced five times and who I'm living with isn't my... You're an amazing person, but there's someone coming. And he's the one we've all been waiting for, both the Samaritans and the Jews. He's coming and he's going to tell us all things. And then the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am he. I am he. That would have been an amazing moment in time. And she must have believed it because later on, she went back, left her water pot, gathered all the men from the city and said, come see this man. Come and have a look at who this man is. They were waiting for the Christ. And the Lord Jesus here clearly states that he's the promised one. Now, what I want us to understand, and this is the part that is just so rich and pregnant with truth that I am not leaving until I finish this part because it's incredible. And I hope your mind will be blown if you don't already know these truths. The word Christ means the anointed one. 
and it refers to three distinct offices of the Old Testament, something that we in our culture wouldn't understand properly, but in the scriptures we do. It refers to three distinct offices of the Old Testament, which were established by anointing one with oil. Literally, you would take a horn from a ram and you would fill it with oil and you would anoint an individual. And one of three offices received, excuse me, uh, three officers in the Old Testament received anointing for their tasks. These three offices included a prophet, a priest, and a king. We don't have time to look there, but Saul was anointed by Samuel as king. 1 Samuel 10 and verse 1. Aaron and his sons were anointed as priests in Exodus 30 and verse 30. David was anointed as king by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. Solomon was anointed as king by Zadok the priest in 1 Kings 1 39. Elisha was anointed as a prophet by Elijah in 1 Kings 19 verse 16. And prophets in general were anointed according to 1 Chronicles 16 and verse 22. So then what does it mean for us, church? What does it mean for the Jews? What did they understand him to mean when he said, I am the Messiah? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the Jews are familiar with anointing. Don't think about our culture. We haven't got a clue what that looks like. It'd be the weirdest thing if I said, come on up the front here. I've got a ram's horn here filled with oil and I'm just going to pour it on your head. It makes no sense. But in that culture... It means something very significant. You have just been ordained. You've been set apart for a specific office within the kingdom of Israel. The Jews were very familiar with anointing. They'd seen many kings, many prophets, many priests be anointed. However, however, no individual in all of their history had ever fulfilled all three offices of prophet, priest, And king until Jesus shows up on the scene. In being Messiah, the Christ, Jesus wonderfully fulfills what no other man has ever fulfilled. He is the prophet. He is the priest. And he is the king. When he says, I am the Messiah, they knew what that meant. They knew what was being said here. You're the anointed one of God as our prophet, priest and king. And so for the remainder of our time, let me just show you how this works. First of all, Jesus as the prophet. If you're a prophet in the Old Testament, you have three distinct functions or abilities. Number one, you're a representative of God. A prophet was a representative called and established by God. Secondly, you are one who delivers a message from God to the people. And thirdly, not always required, but often you are one who works healings and miracles to authenticate the message that you have proclaimed. You're a representative, you speak for God, and you have the power of God, if you like. That's what a prophet was. Well, what does the Bible say about the Lord Jesus? Well, in Matthew 21 and verse 11, the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. In Luke 7, 15 to 16, again, we don't have time to look at them. Get a copy of the notes, maybe. And the dead men sat up. The dead man sat up and began to speak. 
And Jesus gave him his mother. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Here's a prophet. Here's the prophet Jesus. And then if that's not enough, he refers to himself. In Mark 6 verse 4, Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honour except in his own hometown and among his relatives and in his own household, speaking of himself. Jesus, the prophet. Secondly, Jesus, the priest. Jesus is referred to as the high priest on so many occasions in the Bible. Being a priest involved two important aspects in the history of Judaism. One was the attribute of holiness, the individual themselves, the attribute of holiness. And secondly, it was the action of mediation. Here's what I mean. A priest was called and set apart as one who is holy unto the Lord. This priest here was called to serve the Lord in a way that was holy. And so that was the attribute of the person. But then their activity or their action of mediatorial sacrifice. Here we bring the ram or the bull or the goat or the kid and I sacrifice this. I literally slit its neck and I I burn aspects as an offering for sin for the people before God. The priest operated as a almost, not fully, but almost as a mediator between God and man for the people. And they would bring their offerings and he would kill them on behalf of their sin and his own sin. So he was to be holy and he was to be a mediator between the people. Now I know what you're going to say. That sounds a lot like the Lord Jesus. Because was he not holy? Yes. Was he not our mediator? Yes, he was. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted like as we are, yet without sin. There's our holy high priest. And then you say, well, was he a mediator? 1 Timothy 2.5, There is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I'm going to read Hebrews 7, I have to. Verse 25 and 27 to 27 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high, high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifice daily for First for his own sins and then for the sins of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Hallelujah. What a high priest. And then lastly, Jesus the king. Jesus the prophet. Jesus the priest. Jesus the king. The final aspect of Christ's anointing is as our king. Revelation 17 and verse 14 says, They make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. Future time, incredible time in 
in what is uh, yet to come for us. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. When we say, Lord... Jesus Christ. We say, Lord, you're sovereign, you're master, you're in control, you are God. When we say Jesus, we say you are the human means by which we are saved. Jehovah is salvation and we recognize who you are. And when we say Christ, we say you are the anointed, the chosen, the one who is the prophet, the one who is the priest and the one who is the king. Massive download of information, I get that, huge, huge amount to take in for us this morning. I couldn't separate this three-in-one title. And as we close, let me just finish with these thoughts. First of all, the phrase, Lord Jesus Christ, as a whole, appears 61 times in the New Testament. That is the full title of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. That's the full title of the Son of God, Lord Jesus Christ. When we use these titles, let's remember what they mean. Don't let them just be flippant. Don't let them just come off our tongue. Be aware of what we're saying. He's the sovereign master before whom we bow, whose servants we are. He's the man who yielded his life on the cross for our redemption. He's the chosen one of God who presently and continuously functions as our prophet as our priest and as our king. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. We bow in that precious name. We realize that we cannot fathom the depths of these truths today. We cannot understand all that is contained within these terms and these titles But we are praying that you would open our eyes. We are praying that we would not just flippantly, casually, or in a cliche form, use this three-in-one title. But that we would realise what we are saying when we are saying, Lord. What we are saying when we say Jesus. And all that was accomplished when we say Christ. Our prophet, our priest and our king. As we partake of these emblems before us in a few moments, may it be in our minds and in our hearts all that Jesus, the man, accomplished for us. In dying upon the cross, in being buried, in being raised from the dead, in giving us new life, distributing to us the Holy Spirit to guide us and to lead us, 
Lord, help us to appreciate and understand what this is all about. Break us from our formality and from our ritualism, I pray. Help us to see with eyes, spiritual eyes, who it is that we worship. That we would do as was commanded that woman of Samaria. We would worship you in spirit and in truth with genuineness and understanding who you are. Thank you for this time. Thank you for what we are about to partake of together. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.